Last week we finished chapter 10, and before we go on to chapter 11, there's a riff that he's got going that sort of comes in and out, and we're going to go back to it tonight. So actually go back to Zechariah 10 at the beginning. So ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone the vegetation in the field. For the household gods that are nonsense, and the diviners see lies, they tell false dreams, and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep, they are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. So we're going to be doing shepherds, and the shepherd motif is coming in and out. As I was saying last time, chapter 9, for example, in something like 17 verses, goes from 200 years post-Zechariah all the way to the end times. So Zechariah covers a lot of territory very quickly. So now down to the end of chapter 10, down to verse 6 in chapter 10, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them and they shall be as though I had not rejected them for I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like the mighty warrior and the heart shall be glad as with wine their children shall see it and be glad their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. So we're talking about the return of both Joseph and Judah. And to remind you all Zechariah is writing during the first return from Babylon, and only Judah and Benjamin and Levi, of course, are coming back. So then we go down to verse 8, I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. This is again both Judah and Joseph. Verse 10, I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. Remember, Joseph got scattered to Assyria. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. Gilead and Lebanon are the historical area where Joseph was. Remember, Joseph is the northern kingdom. So when you're talking Gilead, Lebanon, that area up there, you're talking about Joseph. So now down to chapter 11, and you sort of need a run-up to understand what's going on at the beginning of chapter 11, because it's a continuation of this thought. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of shepherds, for the glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. All of that territory is Joseph, Ephraim. So what's happening up until verse 3 on chapter 11 is obviously the return of Judah and Joseph. And this destruction that's happening, I believe, is because Joseph is going back and dispossessing the people who are there, and reclaiming his ancestral territory. There has been no identifiable return of Joseph. Now, when the two 
nations separated. And by the way, that separation was affected by God, not by Israel. God is the one that broke them into two houses because Solomon had sort of drifted away and started following all of his wives and his son Rehoboam was kind of a snot. So what God did is took Jeroboam and said, I'm giving you the house of Israel. I will not take everybody away from Solomon's son because of my covenant with David, but 10 of them are going away. So the separation between Judah and Israel was a God thing, not a human thing. And I, in, in the process of writing a long article that I hope to have published by Friday, talking about it, it had to do with Ephraim being God's arrow and Judah being the bow. It just all of a sudden lit up all sorts of stuff. And I hope to have my article ready to publish by Friday. So anyway, where we are in chapter 11 is the return of Joseph, which is yet future to Zechariah and yet future to us. So on now, down in verse 4. Thus says the Lord my God, Become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hands of his neighbor, and each into the hands of the king. And they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. This, I believe, is the dispersion under the Romans, which is also, of course, yet future from Zechariah's time. As we talked about on Shabbat, one of the things that had happened to the religious establishment is they had become the deep state. They were more interested in their interactions with each other than they were in Moses. So there had arisen a body of man-derived law loosely based on Moses, and that had taken on greater importance than Moses himself. These folks were more interested in being a member of the clique than they were in being shepherds like they were supposed to be. And so Yeshua, when he comes, and we talked about it in the context of John chapter 5, if you're interested in looking that up, goes after him and basically said, I'm the son of God. You can tell that by the works that I do, and they bear witness of me. You guys should understand that, and you should understand that I'm talking Moses, and you should get out of your little cliques and come back to Moses, which, of course, they don't. And so they get scattered by the Romans, which is what I believe this chunk is talking about. The other thing that's going on here, as you remember from our study of Ezekiel several weeks, months ago, one of the things that God had Ezekiel do is play act. He'd lay on one side and cook his meals on a dung fire and all that kind of stuff. The idea of people go, what are you doing? And what he was doing was acting out prophecy. Zechariah is doing the same thing here. Same idea as what Ezekiel was doing. So now down to verse 7. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union. And I tended the sheep. 
In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. Who are the three shepherds? Anybody got any ideas? Nor does anybody else. The best suggestion of what that might be, and this rings true with me, but that doesn't mean that it's right, is there are three voices in Scripture, and you've all been through this before. There's the voice of the priest, there's the voice of the prophet, and there's the voice of the king. It's the job of the priest to represent the people before God, to separate between clean and unclean, between holy and common, and to teach the law. That's what the priest's job is. The king is human wisdom or human government, which is ordained by God. There's nothing wrong with kings. The prophet is the voice of God who comes into Israelite society when they have gone astray. So the prophet speaks for God to people. The priest speaks to God for the people. But you've got these three voices, if you will, prophet, priest, and king, and all of them together are what I would call the shepherds. They're the ones who are responsible for the governing and the order of the nation. So if the three shepherds go astray, what winds up happening is the nation winds up like sheep without a shepherd, and the nation then goes astray. As I say, nobody that I know of knows who the three shepherds are per se, but that makes sense to me. So do with that as seems good to you. Back to verse 8 again. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. Now, if you see Zechariah in his play acting, acting out what Yeshua is going to do, What we just have here right now is John chapter 5, which is what we talked about. What Yeshua does is he goes and he upbraids the three shepherds, which is to say he goes after the leadership of the nation, and they detest him. They detest him to the point where they plot to kill him. So you can look at that as a combination of acting and prophecy of what Yeshua is going to do. Verse 9, so I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. The idea is Yeshua comes back, tries to drag them back to Torah. They refuse. So he says, fine next voices you're going to hear is going to be in Latin. It's going to be the Romans. Verse 11. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages. If not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter. The lordly price at which I was priced by them So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Now, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel happened some 
200 years prior to Zechariah. God was the one that annulled that when he separated the two kingdoms. So that's 200 years in the past from where Zechariah sits right now. You also have, looking 400 some odd years future, to the work of Yeshua. So it's all mixed up in this one prophecy. Obviously, you all know, 30 pieces of silver was the price that was paid to betray Yeshua. It is also the price that a man with an ox who gores a slave must pay to the slave's owner. So if you got a wild ox and it goes berserk and kills somebody else's slave, the damages that you are to pay are 30 pieces of silver for the life of the slave and the ox is stoned. So you lose the ox and you lose 30 pieces of silver for everyone that is killed. So all the way down now to verse 15. Then the Lord said to me, Take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am rising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young to heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat one, tearing off even their hooves. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who I've been going to breakfast with for 20-some-odd years, talking about this. In the Torah, there is the 50-year cycle of the Jubilee. It turns out in nature, quote-unquote, there are also 50-year waves that are identifiable. They're called Kondratiev waves, and you have peaks and valleys in them. You know, like one of the troughs was in 1929, the Great Depression kind of thing. And so they're identifiable by the things that are happening in the world. God says the world is going to operate on a 50-year cycle. Here's how you manage it. I've built this cycle into my world. Now what I'm doing for you, Israel, is I'm telling you this is how you manage it. And what happens in every human society and it's just the way people are, is over time, the clever ones and the ruthless ones wind up running the table. They wind up owning everything because they're either very clever or very ruthless. That's the way people are. So what God says is every 50 years, what I want you to do is I want you to return the people to their ancestral land because ultimately the land is the primary source of wealth. Now, all of you clever ones who have run the table and amassed great fortunes and all that kind of, you don't have to give the money back. You get to keep it. But what you have to do is you have to give the land back. So our 50-year reset, which corresponds with this 50-year wave that economists have discovered in the world in the last couple centuries, is God's way of saying, okay, I know that the bright ones and the ruthless ones are going to rack up great wealth. But every 50 years, I want to do a reset so people go back to their land and they have a chance to start again, as opposed to having it go on in perpetuity. Now, the thing that happens in Israel and everywhere else is the clever and the ruthless ones don't do it. And so then what happens is God does a hard reset. And that's when you 
get the Romans and the Babylonians and the Assyrians when it has gone so long that nobody will do a reset the way God would have you do a reset. So God reaches out and resets you by force. Now, understand that these waves exist. I mean, they're, they're observable. You can look it up. It's Kondratiev wave, K-O-N-D-R-I-E-F-F, I believe. But anyway, the point I'm making here in Zechariah, Israel, toward the end, when Yeshua was walking among them, the elites were like shepherds who were dining on the sheep. The next thing that Yeshua says, all right, you guys won't listen to me when I'm offering you the chance to repent, the chance to get back on track, the next voice you're going to hear is in Latin because you're going to be up to your hips and Romans, which they were. So verse 17, Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. The idea is that those who are in positions that God regards as being shepherds are expected to be good shepherds. They are not expected to feast on the flock. It is perfectly acceptable for a shepherd to take milk and wool and the occasional lamb for a barbecue. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is someone who exploits the flock and doesn't care for it. Torah is simple enough that it can be understood by a fisherman or shepherd. What happened over the years is a body of case law got piled on top of it so that nobody could understand it, and you lost track of the simplicity of the original document. And our Constitution is the same way. Our Constitution was written so an intelligent layman could understand it. Look at the Code of Federal Law. The thing that occurred to me that I was talking to my wife about is the stated purpose of the Constitution is to limit government. It's to say this government cannot do. The purpose of the Torah in most cases is to limit what the powerful can do to the weak. So you have all of these laws that have to do with economics and so forth and they are limitations on the powerful. That's what our Constitution was trying to do as well, limitation on government. The idea that there's always going to be some level of human corruption just because the place is populated with humans is a given. I mean, that's just going to happen. What you don't want is systemic corruption. And when you get systemic corruption, that's when God gets upset with Israel and with empires, and that's when we get a hard reset. Chapter 12, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth, and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, 
the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. I think this is the end of the millennial kingdom. But I could certainly be talked out of it if somebody has a better idea. The comment was that when Yeshua returned, he is coming back on a white horse. And it is going to be a battle. And this could very well refer to that one. And I'm perfectly happy with that. I don't have any problem with that at all. On to verse 6. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. Verse 7. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I can see this either at the beginning or the end of the millennial reign. Probably at the beginning because I suspect Joseph is coming back here in just a minute. So verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This is one that every Christian knows by heart, the idea that Yeshua is going to be leading that. And one of the things that we know from the Gospels is when he comes back with his resurrection body, he still has scars on his hands and on his side. Because Thomas is invited to touch them. So those have not gone away. Verse 11. On that day the morning in Jerusalem shall be as great as the morning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. And what that was was the battle when King Josiah, who was sort of the last of the righteous kings of Judah, was killed by Pharaoh Necho at the battle just north of Megiddo. Hadad Roman is just north of Megiddo. So there's always been battles there because that's where you can move an army. Verse 12. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves the family of the Shemites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. What I think this may mean, depending on who Nathan is, because David has both a son and a court prophet named Nathan. So if we're talking about the court prophet named Nathan, what we're talking about is the three shepherds again. So David is the king, Nathan is the prophet, Levi is the priest. So the three shepherds that we talked about back up in chapter 10 would be here mourning 
for their dereliction of duty at the time of the return of the Messiah. So the idea here, I think, as I say, Zechariah has got stuff all tangled up in eras and everything else. You know, he switches time frames without even taking a breath. But it feels to me like these individual shepherds who were supposed to have been guiding the flock and have been derelict in their duty will mourn when they meet the Messiah. And it will be personal mourning as opposed to national mourning because the sins, if you will, were personal, which then led to national sins. 